Welcome to the Florida Law Podcast, episode 17. I'm Rebecca Valentina Oroca, and I'm a lawyer practicing civil law in Florida. In this podcast, we seek to comment and explain newsworthy opinions issued by the Florida Supreme Court and its five district courts of appeal. Occasionally, we delve into federal cases. While these courts are in session and issuing opinions, we'll be releasing a few episodes a month. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in co-hosting an episode of this podcast or have any other ideas, please drop us a line. Today, my guest is Santiago Oroca, a lawyer who practices criminal law in Florida. Hi, hello. How are you? How are you doing today? Very well. We're, we're ready to go, I think, today. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you for coming. So, by the way, at the end of this podcast, we'll have a full disclaimer, so please listen to it. So, Santiago, let's get a little tease about what some of the cases that you are having for us today. Yes, of course. Well, I would like to speak with you about a Supreme Court ruling this week that uh, causes police departments to lose a lot of money, a lot of revenue they are going to lose. Doesn't sound so good. And I will be talking about whether Florida's absentee ballot signature requirements are constitutional. Another issue with Florida voting. And then I have an interesting opinion from a Florida Court of Appeals pertaining to the reasonable hypothesis of innocence. That's a very complicated phrase, reasonable hypothesis of innocence. And there is a lot of argument about that phrase in the courtroom. Sounds very cryptic. Okay. And finally, I will delve into a public figure down here in Miami-Dade County who files a defamation suit against a local TV station and find out what happens after that break. Okay. So can we start then? Mr. Oroca, I will turn it over to you. You have something from our U.S. Supreme Court today. Yes. Some weeks ago, we were talking about this case when the Supreme Court decided to hear the arguments on this case. This case is the title Teams v. Indiana. The opinion has just uh, been uh, published. It was uh, published on February 20th, 2019. It was argued in November 28th, 2018. That's more or less when we talk about it. And it deals, what, uh, it deals with excessive fines. What is an excessive fines and whether the states were prohibited from imposing excessive fines under the federal constitution. It's, it's a quite interesting case because the uh, decision of the court, 9 to 0, number one is the first opinion I know with the new Supreme Court justices that goes 9 to 0. Unanimous. It's unanimous, total agreement. Liberals, conservatives, everybody agrees in the result in this case. And the result in this case is that um, states cannot continue the practice that many police departments had of finding or impounding property without taking into consideration a proportionality analysis. I explain it. This uh, particular case uh, happened in Indiana in which, in this case, uh, there was an individual that uh, decided to sell some uh, heroin to some police officers. He was driving a brand new uh, expensive car. I believe it was a Land Rover that he had just purchased for $42,000. So he pleaded guilty. 
for uh, selling uh, a controlled substance to police officers. Um, the state of Indiana moved to seize the car, arguing that the car had been used in the commission of the crime, and therefore the state was entitled to keep the car. Uh, the trial court said no, because the trial court found that it was an excessive fine, taking into consideration that the fine for that offense is $10,000. So the value of the car was four times more than the established by statute uh, fine for the offense. The trial court said no. The uh, Court of Appeals said no. We don't agree with the state position and you are not going to take the car. The Supreme Court of Indiana said yes because the uh, protection against excessive fines that is in the Eighth Amendment of the Federal Constitution has not been incorporated into the states. So the state of Indiana is free, is, uh, free to construe uh, this fine and impose as a fine $40,000, even if the statute says $10,000, and therefore seize the car. Well, the Supreme Court says the following. No. Who, who delivered the majority opinion? The majority opinion... Uh, the was unanimous The, the unanimous opinion was uh, Justice Ginsburg. Okay, delivered Justice Ginsburg. And it's shocking that everybody agreed with Justice Ginsburg, at least for this particular point. And it's interesting of other opinions, other matters that are on the pipeline and are coming in, in the next months. So the Supreme Court analysis starts with the... Uh, fundamental phrases of whether the right claim, the right not to suffer excessive fines, is a fundamental to our scheme of order liberty. That's one of the um, special phrases. The second phrase is deeply, or the right is deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And the unanimous response is yes to both. Yes to both. Uh, the court goes into an analysis of uh, British uh, English common law. And in English common law, there was a protection against excessive fines. Uh, continues with the protection against excessive fines before the Civil War and after the Civil War. And concludes that excessive fines have a chill chilling effect on the First Amendment and also a chilling effect on the exercise of other fundamental rights. And also, I believe it's Judge Thomas, because he said that in public several times, it contributes, is in fact, um, just a mechanism for many police departments to increase the revenue and for many cities to obtain revenue uh, that should not be obtained through that way. So the conclusion is that historically, um, the people of the United States considers that it's fundamental for the scheme of order liberty that no excessive funds, excessive funds are imposed. And what is an excessive fund? That was my next question to you. Oh, well, <laughs> it's not clearly defined, but they say, they say, it's a fine that does not take into account proportionality. If the statute says, $10,000, and that's the will of the people of Indiana through the legislature, there is no reason to impose a fine that is four times higher just because a police department 
Orange Doom bullshit. Okay. Let me, the, the, I, the, the question I have kicking around in my head for you is let's say the state of Indiana, the legislature, passes a law saying for that exact crime that the maximum fine is $500,000, okay? Do you think that would then fly? Probably no. No. Uh, probably no, although, although there is an issue as to what is an excessive penalty, and the Supreme Court, in several opinions, I remember, has ruled that that's left for the states. But what in the case of fines says, because it is quasi-criminal, it is in an in rain, okay? It's quasi-criminal, it's not fully criminal, it is partially, it's a civil penalty in rain, that the states have to take into consideration some proportionality of the offense. So let's suppose this individual had been transporting, uh, instead of few, few grams of heroin, a larger amount of heroin, something like half a kilo of heroin, which is a lot of heroin. Probably the court, I mean, the Supreme Court would have said, well, uh, $40,000 is proportional to the offense in this particular case, uh, transporting a huge amount of heroin. So probably the Supreme Court response would have been different. But that's not the essence of the Supreme Court. The essence of the Supreme Court is that from now on, sexist fines are prohibited because we are all of us protected by the federal constitution, the Eighth Amendment, as incorporated uh, through the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, and therefore, there is a matter of uh, essence, essential matter of due process in having fines that are proportional to the offense. Okay, so let's take this back to Florida. Okay, the Florida drug trafficking statutes, they have increased fines more than yes. re a regular third degree felony, such as grand theft. Yes. You know, they have higher fines, right? Yes. For, for trafficking in heroin, trafficking in MDMA. So, so do you think that's going to affect Florida down here? Yes. It uh, will affect many police departments, many police departments in many states. There was a practice in Florida, like in, in many other states, for instance, in soliciting prostitution, which is a second-degree misdemeanor, of seizing the car of the person soliciting the prostitution, for instance, okay? Well, soliciting prostitution, if I remember well, has a minor fine, very minor fine, less than $1,000. Uh, yeah, I think it's $500. It's a, a second-degree misdemeanor. That, okay, around that. It's a second-degree misdemeanor, Okay. But police departments were impounding cars and requiring owners of cars to pay a quite considerable amount of money to recover the car or in within, I believe, 72 hours or they would lose the car forever. So that practice that was really, really common, widely accepted, obviously, I mean, it's illegal now. It's illegal now. I also believe that the practice of impounding uh, assets um, that uh, are uh, uh, in excess of fines or the statutory fine will stop. I see in federal cases, because uh, the feds love to seize houses, boats, and large amount of properties in these economic fraud, Medicare fraud kind of cases, so I see a huge reverberation for that. Well, yes and no. It depends on whether the state or the federal government can prove that the items were acquired with dirty money, Okay. Because that's not a fine. That is seizing the proceeds of an illegal activity, which in itself, in itself is a crime. If we are talking about a fine, yes. I mean, although the federal government was already constrained by the federal constitution, not so much uh, states, but if it is a fine, of course, fines uh, will have to be proportional. 
But if it is not a fine, like uh, what you are saying, the house, the, the federal government can prove that the house was bought with the proceeds of the legal activity, like let's say Medicare fraud, no? that we are in South Florida, so Medicare fraud. No? Well, they can seize the property. Well, Not we, as a fine. We should say in the Tim's case, my recollection of the facts is that Mr. Tim's had purchased his car with some life insurance proceeds from a yes, deceased family member. That's one of the first things that the Supreme Court says, that the government was not arguing that the proceeds to buy the Land Rover were illegal proceeds. They say in the Supreme Court, the first thing the court says is that the record shows that the proceeds to buy uh, the car came from uh, a will. I mean, or some, uh, some yeah, money paid for Yes, uh, uh, probably, like life insurance. Yes, a life insurance uh, because uh, the defendants, the petitioner, in this case, Mr. Tim's mother had died. So that may be an avenue for police departments to pursue. It has to be a, a, an instrumentality of the crime or proceeds from the crime. Well, yes, if it is an instrumentality of the crime, there is not an issue with proportionality or anything like that because it's a crime, period. So no, they, the defendant shouldn't have this money, which is different if this, uh, it was acquired, let's say, with clean money, and suddenly the government wants to take it. That's what the government now is going to have more problems. They'll have an additional burden. Yes. Okay. All right, so we're going to turn back into a very Florida issue that people around the country just keep shaking their heads at whenever they think of Florida. Is that of voting? <laughs> we just can't seem to get it right down here. I apologize to the rest of the, the country. But here we have a case from the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. It's the Democratic Executive Committee of Florida for Bill Nelson for U.S. Senate versus Laurel Lee, the Attorney General of the state of Florida in her capacity as a Florida Secretary of State. And the other appellant on the case is the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So this was an opinion that was um, issued way after our midterm elections. It was issued February 15th, just a few weeks ago, from the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida. So Judge Rosenbaum wrote um, that voting is the beating heart of our democracy here. And he goes into an issue that the whole country has known about for a while. In the election for the, the Senate campaign versus Bill Nelson versus Rick Scott, there was an issue that had, tur that had turned up in which um, Florida law requires that those who submit absentee ballots by mail sign the back of the envelope, a certificate, on, before they mail in their ballots. Voting officials then later compare the signature on the certificate to the signature on file for the voter. This person, this official, if they believe the signature does not match, they reject the ballot. Mm -hmm. So, however, um, one of the big criticisms is that um, the, the, the people who are reviewing these ballots are not trained to review handwriting, uh, not trained to make uh, comparisons. They receive very little or no training. And the other issue that came to light on this case is what happens when a ballot is rejected, whether voters can try to cure those improperly rejected ballots. Mm -hmm. So the Florida legislature had some problems with this a few years ago, and then they amended the election code to allow voters to cure improperly rejected ballots. However, that still didn't seem to solve the problem because that, that amendment um, allowed a voter until 5 p.m., one day before the election to verify his or her identity by submitting an affidavit and an acceptive form of identification. So this is both an issue for absentee ballots and for something called provisional ballots. 
Here in Florida, um, prospective voters who cannot prove their eligibility to vote casts a provisional ballot. Like the absentee ballots, these ballots have the same signature match requirement. And um, there is no way under Florida law at the time that the midterms happen, which a provisional voter whose ballot was rejected for a signature mismatch could cure their rejected ballots. So there's obviously some holes here in the legislation. And the plaintiffs from the Nelson campaign challenged the constitutionality of both these schemes for the vote by mail, the absentee ballots, and the provisional voters. They asserted that the scheme continued to disenfranchise voters on an arbitrary basis in violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. So the district court issued a stay um, allowing uh, 48 hours for the uh, possibility of these, these voters to attempt to cure this issue. And the campaign, uh, the Republican National Committee uh, filed a motion in opposition to this stay. Well, under this, the stay was granted in the district court. Um, at that point, um, this is the actual opinion from the Court of Appeals affirming that decision by the district court. They went ahead and issued the opinion with, they went ahead and issued the order, but without the writing of a formal opinion in order for this to be done within a reasonable time after the election mm -hmm. periods. So the court here went through whether the analysis of the stay of the preliminary injunction. They went through um, several factors, and I'm not going to go through all of them because it's a very lengthy opinion. It's about 83 pages, including the dissent. The primary issue was whether the stay applicant had made a strong showing that it would likely succeed on the merits. That's the first of four factors. Um, that's the only one I'll be covering today because there are many other issues. So here, the court turned into whether the NRSC had made a strong showing that it would likely to succeed on appeal on the constitutional claim here. The analysis here is whether there was a law that severely burdens the right um, to vote and whether that vote has a compelling state interest attached to it. So because a, a law that challenges the burden to vote, there has to be a stricter set of scrutiny to, to apply when reviewing the law here. So the court went through the uh, issue here. They applied, um, the, they felt that there was a risk of disenfranchisement to voters in two ways. First, because the way the Florida implements the scheme, and second, because of the very nature of matching signatures has a lot of deficiencies in the way that Florida does it. Well, number one, Florida had not enacted uniform standards for matching signatures, nor it had any qualifications or training for those who engaged in the job. Did you understand that? County by county, yes, and yes. Florida is a large that's, place. That's the problem in Florida. There is not a state standard for anything related to elections. And the court was very crit critical because Florida allows each county to apply its own standards and procedures for being able to verify that signatures match. Virtually, as the court says here, virtually guaranteeing a crazy quilt of enforcement of the requirement from county to county. So they went on and saying, even if that every county official was uniformly and expertly judging these signatures correctly, they would still reject this scheme because of the inherent nature of the types of signatures here. Innocent factors like the writer's body position, surface, type of pens. You know, when people are assigning things, they could be doing it in different ways, but it's still the same person. The other issue was that deadline that I had mentioned earlier. The opportunity to cure the mismatch should have been a part and parcel of any constitutional scheme. 
However, the requirement to cure it by 5 p.m. on the day before the election meant that the deadline to cure a rejected ballot came before the deadline for the supervisor to receive the ballot in the first place. Therefore, there were some inconsistencies there. Yes. So, and even more problematically, the law did not require canvassing boards to even begin the canvassing of vote-by-mail ballots and check for the signature match before noon on the day after the election. So you can see these cross-currents going here in how the state attempted to cure this problem the last time. And the court here found that the Florida scheme imposes a serious burden on the right to vote and that therefore the, the National Republican Committee in this case could not show that they were, they were um, able to overcome the granting of the stay. Yeah, it's curious to me that opinion after opinion, okay, court opinion after uh, court opinion, they say uh, Florida must adopt standards, minimum standards for all these things. Uh, must pay more attention to the electoral process. But nothing happens, nothing changes. I mean, it's something that really unnerves me. I was producing the other day in a bookstore a book called One Man No Vote that I want to read that seemed to be very documented on all these problems. Uh, and to me, it's amazing that in this uh, country we cannot, in states like especially Florida, for whatever reason, when there is, um, and this is a fractured state, no? So it's common that in Florida there is a, a very disputed uh, election. It's common in Florida that there is a very disputed election. Uh, frequently it happens that we don't have a proper mechanism to resolve it. And at the end of the electoral process, we have um, two important question marks. The result is fair, one, and second, has my vote been counted? I mean, we cannot answer for sure those questions, and we should be able to, to do that. No? Well, it was interesting. interesting. I urge anyone to read the whole opinion because I just gave it a brief uh, glance over for the purpose of this podcast. I read the whole thing. But there was actually an affidavit submitted by a, a U.S. senator, a congressperson named Patrick Murphy, who was unable to cast his own ballot because of these rules, and his vote wasn't counted. So I'm not expressing an opinion either way, but it just seems like the court was very critical here well, of, it doesn't mean of Florida. I, I mean, I don't want to take a lot of time on this matter, but... Listen, you can write a check and have a different uh, signature, okay? A slightly different signature, and the bank will honor the check. So why uh, the Department of Elections needs a perfect match? And a perfect match according to whom? And according to what is standards? You understand? So those things are obviously undue burdens that, in my opinion, they have only one purpose, to make more difficult um, people votes. I mean, to more and more people that people vote. That's all. Well, we'll have to see how this this is a to be continued because it's, oh, yes. there's always issues of of, of prevention of voter fraud, and I think that was the concern that the other side had made in this case. So, Santiago, it looks like we're gonna go for a little break, and we'll be back after this. Santiago, you have a criminal case on something called the reasonable hypothesis of innocence. Can you tell us what you're talking about here? Well, these are magic words that are disputed frequently, really frequently in uh, every courtroom, in every, almost every uh, criminal case, criminal trial. Um, the District Court of Appeals for the 5th District in uh, February 22nd, 2019, published the opinion of Stephen Duxbury versus the state of Florida, 
And the opinion has two parts. The facts of the opinion are very simple. This is uh, uh, sexual, attempted sexual battery that ended in, in a homicide. It's a female who arrived very uh, inebriated to her residence, and a security guard, according to the opinion, um, accompanied her uh, to her apartment, abused uh, her, and killed her. Okay? That's, those are the, the facts in oh, yeah. general. They're very, very tragic case, very tragic case, no doubt about that. But there are two issues interesting. Mr. Duxbury, after denying the defendant, after uh, when he was arrested, after denying, 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 he confessed. He admitted he had tried to rape his female, um, she resisted, um, during the fight, he had strangled her and killed her. Okay, and then he had tried to clean the, the crime scene. Okay. He said he moved to uh, suppress his confession on a very interesting uh, grounds. The ground was that uh, in Florida there is a statute which is uh, section 493.6118 that requires security officers to cooperate with investigations. Oh, yeah. So he said that because he was required by a statute to cooperate, he had given this statement under duress. This makes me think of Post. the accident report privilege. Yes, something like under duress. Well, the judge said, I'm so sorry, it doesn't fly, because nowhere in the statement that was uh, video recorded, and no one is arguing in this court, that uh, someone argued that if you did not give a statement and waive your Miranda right, you were going to be sanctioned by the state. And losing your license or uh, 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 being uh, retaliated again in, against in any also said the, uh, the statute also said I mean the red uh, sorry the trial also said that the statute says that this obligation to cooperate is to cooperate with investigations conducted by the Department of Agriculture and Consumer and Consumer Services. That's the department that issues security guard licenses. Yes. Therefore. Therefore, that a criminal investigation had nothing to do, and anyway, no one threatened him with taking his license away or uh, in case he didn't, he didn't give the statement. That's, that's the first part. The second part is more interesting because this case was, like many cases, also a circumstantial case. Besides his statement, there were a series of circumstances, like some witness saw something, but not a crime. Um, there were some fingerprints recovered inside the female apartment, and also the female, um, the female body had DNA of the defendant in some parts, especially in, in her breast. So the defendant moved uh, in a judgment of acquittal because the case was more circumstantial, arguing that um, when there is a circumstantial case, the state has an obligation uh, to exclude every reasonable hypothesis of innocence, okay? That's the key word, the magic words. If it is a circumstantial case, the state has an obligation um, to exclude every reasonable hypothesis of innocence, okay? So the court said, well, number one, there was, there, there is evidence, a circumstantial evidence, besides the statement, there is a circumstantial evidence to prove um, that... Uh, uh, to exclude a reasonable hypothesis of innocence because the defendant's DNA was found in the victim's breast, okay? Number one. 
But second, the course said something, wrote something very interesting, that at the end, it is the jury duty to determine whether the evidence is sufficient to exclude every reasonable hypothesis of innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Ah, I see the distinction. So at the end, what the court said, it has to go to the jury. It's not the state's burden. Okay, it is the state's burden to prove it beyond reasonable doubt, like any other uh, issue in a criminal case, but it is for the jury to determine that, not for the trial to determine whether the circumstantial evidence has excluded every possible uh, reasonable hypothesis of innocence. That's why I believe it's important because these phrases are, these phrases not clearly understood exactly what does it mean and is used in every criminal trial. This case, uh, again, is Stephen Duxbury uh, versus State of Florida. It's an opinion filed February 22nd, 2019. Is very interesting as to what exactly is that. So, well, I think we're out of time here today. I think we had a lot of fun talking about the other cases earlier. So, we'll have a little wrap up after the break. And that concludes the 17th episode of the Florida Law Podcast with Rebecca Valentina Oroca. Let us know what you think. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at floridalawpodcast at gmail.com. You're interested in co-hosting this podcast please let us know and now for our disclaimer so our listeners know this podcast cannot and should not be construed as legal advice this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only if you have any questions about a case you may have we advise you to contact an attorney and this podcast cannot and should not be construed as creating any legal relationship with any subscriber or listener this podcast has not been approved for any credits or legal education in any state this episode was produced, directed, scripted, and edited by Rebecca Valentina Oroca, all rights reserved and copywritten. Thank you, Santiago. Thank you. Thank you.